Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to The Politics Guys, the deeper political podcast. I'm Trey Orndorff, and I'm joined this week for the first time, with me at least, with Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. How are you doing? Oh, uh, doing great. Uh, thank you, Trey. It's great to be on this show. Well, I'm looking forward to doing it with you. But before we kind of get started, uh, listeners, there's a few important things that we need to talk about. And the first is, is that we have a really easy, very brief listener survey up on the, uh, on the website, politicsguys.com. There are only seven questions, but it's really going to help us get a better sense of how Politics Guys can improve. So we, again, would appreciate it if at the end of this episode, you'd head over to politicsguys.com and take our survey. And I want to thank you in advance for that. Second, I want to let listeners know that we discovered that our website had a bug. And so if you had been attempting to support us on a mobile device, you have probably encountered an issue and we want to apologize for that. We want you to know that while it isn't pretty yet, if you visit politicsguys.com on iOS or Android, you can now support the show by clicking on either the Patreon or the PayPal links. They will work now. Uh, Again, it's going to be a little ugly, but you can get in there and we appreciate you supporting the show. So with those two things out of the way, Ken, why don't we move on to this week's stories, starting with Florida. And I think that the... This is a really big deal for me because as listeners may know, I live in central Florida. And so this week, the South Florida school shooting in Broward County, excuse me, uh, has brought back a lot of really negative emotions for us because we have just been kind of healing from the Orlando Pulse attack. And so now we have crews in South Florida. Now, this has been kind of, there's a lot of this happening in the news, and we don't want to focus on all that, but as the details of the attack and the role of gun control, they're kind of really an ever-present question in the media and social media, but I think what Ken and I are going to focus here on is flying a little bit more under the radar, is the question of how the FBI handled this case and how both Trump and Governor Rick Scott have in part pinpointed blame on the FBI. Um, So for listeners, if you're not sure about what's uh, happened here, uh, apparently there were actually multiple reports uh, that Cruz, the alleged shooter, uh, was capable of murder and mass murder specifically, and that those hints were passed along to the FBI. One was an online commentator using his handle, and another was actually a January 5th phone call to the Bureau hotline, and those were not properly followed up. Further, law enforcement had actually been called to the home of Cruz over the past several years, over 30 times, and none of that was investigated by the FBI as well had they investigated those hints. Uh, And so, at least down here, the uh, Miami Herald itself has even argued that the FBI has been derelict in its duty and is in part to blame. So, Ken, what do you think about uh, the shooting from this kind of angle or however you'd like to take it? Yeah, well, I guess um, my, my my thoughts on this, um, I, I find it interesting that I, I guess I look at this, you know, from my I guess from my liberal perspective as part of a, a general effort by the um, administration to delegitimize the FBI, which I think the administration is trying to do um, in order to discredit the, the Russia investigation. Because one thing that, that it looks like to me, and I'll be interested to hear how it looks like to someone from, from, from the opposite uh, perspective, is that 
the exact criticism here, which is that the the FBI didn't take uh, th these um, tips seriously enough. Um, it's it's exactly the opposite criticism that we're hearing about the Steele dossier, right? That this, the, the criticism of the FBI with the Steele dossier is that it's a tip that they took too seriously. And so it, it very much looks to me like like the, the, the administration's um, uh, kind of narrative is that the FBI is just damned if they do and damned if they don't, that they, they shouldn't take complaints seriously and that they shouldn't take complaints not seriously. And so that, that's kind of the perspective I've been seeing it from. But I, I, I very, I'm very actually really interested to hear. Um, you know, I, I, I understand that's probably not the perspective that conservatives are seeing it from. So I'm interested to hear that. You know, and I appreciate the wanting to kind of see the both sides. And I think it's one of the cool things we do. I'll, I'll be honest on this particular issue for listeners. It's, it's even a little more difficult than me for me because it is so close to home. You know, Florida, this is, this is where we're from. This is where my family is. And I think for us uh, in Florida, one of the things that's kind of difficult has been in both of these cases, it at least appears possible that shootings could have been prevented by minor or routine or standard follow-ups. And so I, I recognize and I can understand and agree that the administration undoubtedly has a bone in this fight in the way that the FBI needs to always be uh, the bad guy. However, I don't think it's this, and this is an instance where I don't think it's just the Trump administration making the claim. I mean, uh, Rick Scott and others, include uh, other Floridians, have been making this claim as well. So I agree that why it benefits potentially the Trump administration, I don't think that this is an issue where. I think this is more an issue of Trump and the White House piggybacking on a pre-existing issue rather than what I think happens in some instances, which is is they, they create an issue uh, to attack the FBI. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, you could be right, but I guess I, I'm not sure I'm understanding what what the critics think that the FBI could have done even if they had investigated more because – the, the gun laws being what they are, um, it, it, there's no real basis to stop somebody from buying a gun just because um, their neighbors say that they're a creepy person or a spooky person. You know, this is this this uh, I don't believe Cruz had any felony convictions already or anything like that. And uh, I, I don't know what an investigation could have actually accomplished. Yeah. So the um, I, the guns were legally purchased. Um, and in fact, in Florida, as in most states, teenagers can purchase uh, guns. And uh, and and this and Cruz was 19 anyhow, I believe. So he was certainly old enough to purchase guns. And the AR-15 that he had was legally purchased. So, and and I don't think that even with the allegations that had come into the FBI ahead of time, that those would have provided any basis for um, not purchasing gun. For instance, even the fact that he'd been posting on social media that he wanted to be a, a school shooter, um, th that itself under the current gun laws wouldn't be a basis for stopping him from buying a gun. So you're, what you're arguing is is that you you don't think, given the reports at the school, his being expelled, his comments online, that there would have been kind of any follow-up that would have been meaningful to be able to prevent uh, the shooting, no matter what had happened on the FBI's point? Yeah, I mean, I think you could certainly criticize them for not going out and talking to him or, or investigating him a little more, but, but I think if they had done that... Um, you know, these were not complaints that he'd already committed crimes. These were complaints that he was threatening to commit crimes. And so so that wouldn't be um, I don't think that would be a basis to have stopped him from from uh, getting these guns or or for detaining him or anything like that. He hadn't really done anything 
before the school shooting. He'd only threatened to do things. So what I'm hearing you say then, Ken, is, is what your argument is, is that regardless of what the FBI has done, that without additional kinds of gun control, there, is, there would have been no preventing the school shooting. And so you see that from a kind of across the board as being a misdirection. Yeah, I, I think that without meaningful gun control legislation that, that we don't really have right now, that, that there's extreme limits on what the FBI could have accomplished if they had done uh, a more serious investigation. So I, I, I don't disagree that they should have looked into these complaints, but I think the idea that if they had, um, that it would have stopped the shooting, I, I'm not seeing that connection. I'm not sure how an investigation could have prevented this shooting. So one of the points that comes from the right is often that it is the fact that we continue to have crime and issues because the FBI does not follow up or others don't follow up. If they aren't following up, what does it matter what kinds of laws that we end up having in place if, if we don't investigate them? Well, it would, it would matter because, for, for instance, um, like let's suppose that uh, you had a, a law, um, as many jurisdictions used to have up to about 20, 25 years ago, as, as some jurisdictions like D.C. and Chicago had until the Supreme Court struck them down relatively recently, that just said nobody can get a gun unless they can demonstrate that they have a really good reason they need one. Right. So then in that kind of situation, um, it wouldn't have mattered whether the FBI had investigated or not. Someone like this wouldn't have been able to get a, a, a gun. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the laws that we have now are very much in the opposite direction. So there has to be some um, already um, existing uh, criminal convictions or, or already existing uh, adjudications of mental incompetence uh, before somebody could be stopped from getting a gun. So gun control laws, um, if they were strong, uh, they, they could definitely um, prevent people's ability to get guns. Countries like Australia um, and England um, you know, just don't have the problems with gun violence that we have, even though there's no reason to think that they have any, any different rates of mental illness or anything like that. You know, it's always a fascinating argument that's uh, brought up. And one of the counterpoints that often arises there is the question of places like Switzerland, where we have nearly the same number of gun ownerships as per the United States, yet one of the lowest gun violence in the world. So, one of the questions that we're often going to see here is, is that, is it the access to weapons that makes this possible or is it other underlying variables? I mean, for example, uh, we have some of our largest uh, killings in U.S. history have involved ex uh, bombs. So Oklahoma City comes to mind. Uh, so if we don't have effective law enforcement would simply having additional laws, is that going to be the variable switch? And I think that's going to be a point that comes from the right. Yeah, but uh, uh, Switzerland, you know, has extremely high taxes on ammunition. Bullets cost about $1,000 there. So although people can have guns, um, they, they cannot use them very frequently without incurring very high expenses. Um, and also, although we have had some bombings and some, some knife attacks and things like that, you know, the, the, the uh, September 11th attacks were carried out without guns, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, um, you know, gun, gun deaths uh, just numerically really, really dwarf all those other uh, uh, kinds of deaths. So I, I, and mass shootings, you know, we've had hundreds of mass shootings. We haven't had hundreds of bombings or, or hundreds of uh, September 11th type incidents. So certainly you can't stop uh, someone who's really determined to commit an act of terrorism. Um, but I think, um, you know, these kind of teenagers who are mentally not right and who just, you know, one day because they have a gun, they use it. 
I, I think gun control could stop that kind of that kind of incident. Now, and see, and that's another interesting question, and maybe we probably don't have time to take on the question of, you know, <clears throat> would I, yeah, that's an interesting question there, Ken. I I don't know, but um, I think that at least as the kind of the well, it might end on the Floridians' point of view, I, I understand and and can sympathize with the when you have these things happen nearby and you find out in admissions that your law enforcement maybe haven't done what you've hoped to. I know that many of us that has at least rubbed many of us the wrong way, but I hear what you're saying and I can, and I can understand that point of view. Great. Well, you know, as we've been talking about the FBI, I mean, the other huge FBI issue this week is going to be the uh, Mueller indictments. Um, And as a matter of fact, it's fascinating because this probably would have been the headline this week had it not been for the tragedy here in Florida. Um, And this undoubtedly is not the end of the Mueller investigation. But the indictments are a fascinating insight into the willingness of Russia to take some massive misinformation steps in the 2016 election. The 37-page document is a fascinating read, and a number of outlets, including Vox and The New Yorker, I think, have hit on one commonality that's really important, and that's the basic illiteracy of American voters. As the New Yorker put it, quote, it's an embarrassing insight into American life. Large numbers of Americans are ill-equipped to access the credibility of things they read, end quote. And you as a professor, Ken, I know we kind of share this from different points of view. It's at least amazing to me at the amount of time I have to work to help students to have the tools to distinguish between more or less uh, reliable information and uh, again, kind of just, you know, hearkening back to the Florida issue, it's amazing. I, I can't even always look at social media because I get tired of like the screen captions of something somewhere somebody thinks they looked at and now that's like they've captioned the caption as if this is some useful information or statistic that should be backed up. Um, so no matter what, we end up with this really interesting Russian interference in the 2016 elections. And I think this kind of interesting question that, Americans were easily duped by this kind of thing. What do you think about this, Ken? Yeah, well, obviously it works. That's why the Russians do it. And uh, I mean, it's sort of, I think, from a from a um, media literacy standpoint, um, you know, the Internet has had this really unfortunate uh, effect on uh, g- giving us what I guess is sometimes called affiliation journalism, where, um, you know, people are able to uh, get their information exclusively from sources that um, they they tend to um, be of the same political persuasion as and and therefore not have to really grapple with um, uh, uh, narratives that are um, uh, you know th- that are shaped by by uh, sources that they might disagree with or even by sources that are trying to be objective and neutral and so it, it is a problem I think kids raised on the internet rather than um, on the uh, you know I think when I was younger and you just had the three television networks and they they're all being viewed by everybody. Um, then you know th- that that they, that the forces and the pressures on on that meant that they tried to have a more objective kind of narrative. Well, and you know one of the things that I think is really interesting is is when you show students information. And again, I, I'm not trying to just hit on students. I mean, this is a wider problem, but this is just the the captive audience that I have. Uh, but when you show students information, it's fascinating to me their inability to be able to distinguish between, say, this is coming from a newspaper, this is coming from a newspaper that is widely recognized, this is coming from a magazine, this is coming from a peer-reviewed article. Their inability to kind of take a look at those sources means that 
you know, as a matter of fact, one of the things that we see in the indictments is is there's kind of a sh- shock on the Russia side that the things they're putting out get as much share and hits. I think I think maybe they were a little surprised at how well it worked. Yeah, I mean, they, I don't know. They, they they maybe they were surprised. They've been doing it not just in America but in other countries, and I think you know really. They've identified the American voter as um, America's weak link, right? That that if 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 our enemies who who don't mean uh, don't don't have don't have our best interests at heart are looking at ways that they can um, harm our democracy, you know, the, the American voter is front and center. It's not you know not not um, not a military attack, right? It's an information attack designed to weaken our democracy. Yeah, I agree. I think we, it sounds like we we agree on this one. And, and you know, and I, I think in all honesty, that's one of the underpinnings of doing a show like The Politics Guys is to try to help people think a little bit more critically about the stories from a multiple points of view. Um, so to kind of plug ourselves there for a second, I, I do think what we're doing is very important. But there's another angle to the Mueller indictments. And, you know, I mean, Trump has already been uh, crowing on Twitter about how obviously there's now no collusion. And I, I think he's jumping the gun on that. However, there does appear at least to be an indication from the indictments that the kind of the one-to-one scenario where uh, the Russians were simply the pro-Trump guys appears to be at least slightly misplaced. As a matter of fact, it looks like Bernie Sanders was another location where we have Trump attempting to be pushing for him. If anything, it would appear that maybe the Mueller indictment points out a kind of anti-Hillary bias more than a pro-Trump bias, at least from the point of view of, uh, of the, the kind of the Russian propaganda machine. So what do you think that means more seriously uh, for kind of Trump's credibility narrative? And what do you think that means for elections moving forward, Ken? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that um, the a lot of what Putin was trying to do was uh, – um, directed against Hillary Clinton, and that that he was uh, Putin. Putin was trying to you know build up Bernie Sanders just like he was trying to build up Trump. So, um, but but I think that I think what that the way I read that is that he thought that Hillary was going to be elected, and so the the Putin's objective was to just discredit the um, American president, discredit and weaken the American president, and and make uh, large segments of the uh, American electorate. Um, not trust her, think that the um, election was 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 rigged, lose faith in our democracy, but that all of that is um, directed towards his, Putin's belief that Hillary was going to be president. So that that's the way to weaken America. I I think even Putin Putin couldn't have thought that he was actually going to get Trump uh, elected president. Um, it, it, in terms of what Mueller uh, um, is going to be able to prove, it's really hard to know. I think Mueller's playing things very close to the vest in terms of. Um, what what his statements are, and the fact, for instance, that these thirty seven indictments don't mention a word about uh, any kind of collusion with any kind of of the Trump campaign or any Trump operatives, I, I wouldn't interpret that to mean that um, Mueller doesn't have evidence of such collusion. I think he's just not getting out uh, too far ahead of himself. There actually was another um, indictment yesterday. Um, so besides the 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 Russian indictments, there was a, a indictment and a guilty plea. Um, from a, 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 um, a an American named Richard Pinedo, that one came out uh, separately, um, and he was uh, indicted for um, uh, money laundering for those Russians, and he already pled guilty to it. Um, and so the guilty plea was filed with the indictment, and that's the first time anyone heard about the indictment. And it'll be interesting to see what he's agreed to talk about um, uh, uh, to to Mueller in terms of um, whether he was having any links between the. 
the, these Russians who were indicted and anybody in the Trump campaign. And you, and you make a good point. As a matter of fact, uh, it has even been noted by the deputy attorney general that the fact that no allegations in the indictment say anything that any American had any knowledge is not the same thing as saying no American had any knowledge. Yeah, that's you said that better than I said it. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and which means basically that uh, a, a by saying nothing, you haven't said that there's nothing here. You've just not said it yet, potentially, potentially. Right. Right. I also thought it was interesting, since we haven't talked politics as much, that um, these the, these indictments um, were released on a on a Friday afternoon on the day of a you know major news event with the Florida shooting. I, I actually think that um, Rosenstein was was purposely timing that to minimize the media impact. That that he's really trying to um, you know to the extent possible just you know protect the low profile of the Mueller investigation. You know, I mean, there's no real way to release indictments like this and have them go totally unnoticed. But I think it seemed to me the way it was uh, staged is that every effort was um, taken to make it as, as small of a media event as possible. No, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. As a matter of fact, we, we uh, in the media class, we even read a book on, you know, when do you want to, when do you release things to crow about them? When do you release things to bury them? And the answer is you always put things on Friday that you would ha rather have the least amount, but especially after you've already have something that's sucking all the oxygen out of the, the collective consciousness uh, of the country, which is, which is a fascinating point. And I'm not sure, besides making it low-key, it's difficult to say what the intention there is. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the politics there, Ken? Yeah, well, I do think that um, Rosenstein is trying to protect the Mueller investigation. And uh, if you make the assumption that Trump um, gets a lot of his information from watching Fox and Friends and stuff like that, then uh, and, and that, and that if the more the Mueller investigation is covered, the, the more likely it is that that um, Trump's going to try to fire Mueller, or try to fire Rosenstein or something like that, then just cut, trying to low profile it is, is a good way to protect the uh, independence of the investigation, I think. That's actually not a bad suggestion, and you know I, I don't have any any I don't have any thoughts to the contrary. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so while uh, the Mueller the the indictments have probably been a, a pretty big Friday drop, the other really interesting and again something else that has been kind of low key relatively in most circles has been the Senate. Uh, this week, as Vox and others have reported, the U.S. Senate did something very unique. It brought a matter to the Senate floor, and it allowed any kind of amendments addressing the issue on DACA and DREAMers. Uh, there was seemingly at least one potentially likely bipartisan compromise, and for a while it looked like there might be 60 votes there. But on Thursday afternoon, the amendment would fail, and with it, the process in whole. And so obviously this doesn't give the Senate much time until President Trump's March 5th deadline to make something else happen, uh, which means that Republicans and Democrats in the House can breathe a sigh of relief because they at least don't have to deal with it for now. Yeah. Um, Trump and a few Republicans, led by Chuck Grassley, really wanted to commit a bunch of money, about $25 billion, to a wall uh, and pair that issue with the Dreamers. That's gone down. And so it looks like right now that this is all going to end up winding up in the Supreme Court because this has been challenged in court. It doesn't look like the Senate's going to have a fix in place by March 5th, which means we'll probably see a Supreme Court decision determining the fate of DACA and Dreamers. So what do you think about this failure? What do you think about that, Ken? 
Yeah, well, I think um, so. Two separate, two separate questions you really raised there. What, how do I interpret the politics of what happened, and, and what do I think might happen at the Supreme Court? So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to the, throw up everything at you at yeah, once yeah, yeah, because yeah. this is your first time. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah take know, those I, on one at a time. There are two questions there for sure. I, I, here's my read on on Trump and on Congress and on what happened. I'll be interested what your read is on this. So, I think Trump um, is interested in. Uh, cutting back on legal immigration, and that he is willing to uh, make a compromise to allow the Dreamers to have a path to citizenship, um, if 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 he can get the cutbacks that he wants on on legal immigration and greatly reduce the amount of legal immigration. That's that's what he was sort of insisting on towards the end. And I think his his tactics, um, which is basically the tactics he always used when he was a New York uh, real estate businessman, is to kind of agree to deals. And then once the other side agrees to him, say, you know, and I also want this and I also want this and I also want this and and keep pushing the ball. And and I think that it's much harder to work that way um, with Congress because Congress isn't a really public uh, fishbowl. They're, they're being watched and they can't really be seen to be being pushed around like that. So I think, you know, those kind of methods that, 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 that Trump could use with um, vendors and contractors and people like that that he was dealing with in real estate where um, – he sort of makes a deal, and then when they agree, he changes it again and forces them to agree again. I, I just think that that that's, that has limits on how well that can work in, in Congress. And so I, I wasn't surprised to see the deal fall apart. I felt that when he started throwing in his insistence uh, for restrictions on, on legal immigration, I, I think he thought that he'd get that. So I don't think he was trying to make the deal fall apart. But I think it was impossible for um, Democrats in Congress to go along with that. The the bill did the Senate bill um, that would have had both funding for the wall and path to citizenship for DACA did get 54 votes. So it, it passed right. by, by a good majority, but not a not, not a filibuster proof majority. Um, but there was there was only 39 votes for the the c- countervailing bill that would have. Um, restricted legal uh, immigration. And I, I don't think Democrats are ever going to go for that. So, um, so I, yeah, I don't think there's a, a legislative fix here unless Trump changes his mind again. Um, if it goes to court, however, uh, I think uh, the court is probably going to side with the administration. I, I don't think um, DACA is required by law. And uh, if the president doesn't want to continue it, um, I believe he has that power. Yeah, I think I think you're right to point out the politics here. Democrats are in a pretty difficult position in the sense that for their base, they can't, <laughs> they can't restrict immigration and win again. Right. And they, they need that. And I think on the other side, I think from the Trump point of view, and this is just, again, this is not me taking a side yet. The cards are in his hand at this point because the default position is still something better in his view, the allowing the deadline to expire. So in this case, by having it expire, I think Democrats are actually going to end up on the worst end of the stick. I was a little bit surprised that we couldn't end up coming to a deal if for no other reasons that I thought de- Democrats needed a win here, um, you know, moving into the into the fall elections. But fascinatingly enough, we don't have that now. And, and this is something. And can you may or may not know this about me? I had uh, I had posted this on our, our social media a few weeks back. Because I am a, a libertarian-leaning conservative, you know, I'm the guy who throws around the things like, well, what if we just had completely open borders? Uh, so I'm not your standard, right. <laughs> your standard conservative on this one. Um, just to throw that out there for listeners who who, who might not know that about me. Um, yeah, so if I could just. 
Just, just respond to one thing you said. I, I I agree with you that Trump has the upper hand legally. If, if he can he can keep the status quo going, he doesn't have to make a deal. I'm not sure that he has the upper hand politically though, because even though he has the Democrats in a way between a rock and a hard place, where he's insisting that they either vote to restrict immigration or 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 else fail to to get a, a settlement for the the DACA recipients. Um, electorally, remember most most Americans are um, do want a path to citizenship for the DACA recipients, and so. So if Trump defeats the um, uh, Democrats in the legislative battle, I'm, I'm not sure that means he's defeated them in the political battle. That may energize um, uh, more voters um, to, um, to to turn out and vote vote Democratic uh, in order to 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 to, um, to express their views about how this DACA controversy is playing out. I mean, I can understand that point of view, Ken, but I will say that I think a little bit like that tax reform, tax cuts became more popular after the fact. I am not sure if this can't end up being a long-term win for the administration because, again, it's going to look like strength, which clearly seems to come back again and again as a positive for the Trump administration. So, I mean, I'm, I don't disagree with the numbers as they stand today, but I'm. But my, my question would be is, is what will those numbers look like if we have this on March 5th in November. In other words, what will the view of it be then? Because that's what's going to matter, not what the view of it is now, but the view of it is then. And that seems to be where Trump has, and again, this is a guy who's very fascinated in this topic. He seems to have a very savvy ability to turn those things into wins. Well, maybe. I mean, he still has the lowest approval rating of, of any modern president. And, uh, and with the uh, um, DACA, you know, his win, what it's going to mean is that, um, you know, all these uh, uh, children who are, you know, they're adults now, but people who are brought here as children by their parents who've never gotten any trouble, who've went to college, who have jobs, um, they're just going to not be able to work anymore. Um, some of them are uh, probably a handful of them are going to get rounded up and deported and they're they're going to know people. So I don't I don't know that that plays out as, as a win exactly. I, I think most Americans today would say that they're against that kind of thing, do say that they're against that kind of thing. So I don't I don't know that that's a win. Even the tax bill, um, you know, right now people haven't really been dealing with the um, deficits that it's going to cause. But it certainly I agree with you that short term that looked like a win for him. But um, it's going to have a negative impact on the economy soon enough, and he's going to have to answer for that as well. So I think the, the politics of all these issues are not uh, not not completely uh, played out yet. They haven't maturated. No, I can, I can understand that point. Um, you know, and let me just say, I mean, I would hope that the deportation of individuals and those kinds of individual stories would move the electorate, right? So again, in this case, I'm I'm predicting the politics and antithesis of my own preferred positions. <laughs> um, but uh, I, am, I am still just, I am not convinced. I don't think that those will have the kind of reverberation that Democrats think that they will, especially when it comes time to vote. Um, but, you know, one can hope, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and of course, you could be right. We'll just have to see. Yeah. Uh, we'll be in it. Well, maybe as we come around to uh, November, we'll have to kind of update us on this and we'll have to see which of us, you know, yeah. gets the right go. But, you know, right. speaking of elections and thinking about November, the other kind of interesting news this week is that Mitt Romney just threw his hat in the ring for the Utah Senate 
election with a two and a half minute video that really basically, it's a feel good video, not a big shock. It holds Utah up as a model for Washington when it comes to budgets and debt and immigration. But what's really fascinating here for me is, is that it takes some jabs, obviously both at Democrats, but then additionally, it takes some jabs at Trump. And so Romney at seven, he's a favorite for winning. Um, he's already secured the support of Spencer Cox, uh, Utah's lieutenant governor. Uh, but what's the fascinating question here is, is that Romney kind of represents the future of Republican elections. How do you place yourself in relationship to President Trump? Do you deal with him as an ally or a foe? Do you kind of take up the mantle of McCain or not? I know there's been a number of news stories kind of, you know, hinting at that question. So what do you think about this larger picture that the Romney election says about elections in the President Trump era, Ken? That's, a, that's an interesting question. And in some ways, I think, you know, conservative perspectives on that, like yours, are probably more important than Democratic perspectives like mine. But I... I I, you know, I see that there have been some Republican senators already, Corker, Flake, sometimes McCain, who've kind of positioned themselves as anti-Trump, but typically they do vote with the other Republicans. So in the Senate, it doesn't, you know, occasionally it does, but usually it doesn't um, make a big difference in Senate votes, whether you've got a Republican who's positioning themselves as an anti-Trump Republican or as a pro-Trump Republican, because from my perspective, they seem to vote together most of the time. Anyhow, um, there's also sort of the Mitch McConnell way of doing it, which is, um, you know, just to sort of, you know, never criticize Trump, but really, you know, McConnell seems to me always to pursue his own agenda or the Senate's agenda and really to take no particular account of Trump either. And and so that that's sort of a, a third path, I suppose. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I wonder what, what you think it all means. Well, I mean, as as listeners are going to know, I am not a particularly big fan of what President Trump has done to the Republican Party. I think in large part he has pushed out uh, or has begun to push out the kinds of conservatives and the libertarian-leaning conservatives like myself are, are pushing them to the margins at least, if not all the way out. Uh, and it, what's really fascinating is, is that when I look at a guy like Romney, I can't help but look back and think, you know, it wasn't that long ago he was the, he, he was held up as kind of the crazy guy. I mean, I don't remember if you remember this, Ken, but when, when Romney was running for president and he just got bashed because he argued that the, the threat to the United States was going to come from Russia. Yeah. <laughs> And the left and the right both, like nobody can really, you know, hold themselves up on this one. They all just went, oh, you are just an out-of-touch cold warrior. <laughs> and, you know, I really think that if I was Mitt Romney, I'd really want to be like the guy who said, yep, I was right. <laughs> and so it's fascinating how he's kind of this, you know, here at 70, he's reinvented himself. And he now seems like the far more, oh, hip and non-mainstream conservative, which yeah. is just fascinating. And I mean, more power to him, but it's it's fascinating to me as a guy who has kind of had to, to deal with his own place in the conservative uh, movement to see Romney come back and potentially maybe be a new kind of face, uh, an anti-Trump kind of face. And somebody who, again, I think both the left and the right need to give him some more credit for what the things he brought up during his uh, his his campaign for presidency. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, it's interesting. The congressional Republicans, um, the sort of the, the dominant Republican position in Congress, I think, is is c- related to the conservative movement. But the um, Republicans who've been nominated to run for president as Republicans, Romney, but also even McCain and even Trump himself, um, have been positioning themselves as much more moderate than the, than the conservative movement. And it's been it's been a while. Um, you know, may, maybe even um, have to go all the way back to Reagan. Um, to find a Republican presidential candidate, or I guess George W. Bush also, but a couple presidential Republican presidential candidates have positioned themselves as conservative. But I think usually the path to the Republican nomination um, through primary systems is is to position more to the center. And so Romney did that. Trump did that too, though. I mean, Trump really positioned himself as the most centrist candidate uh, dur- during the uh, primary season. But then he he has, um, I think, largely through his inattention. Um, and through just, um, you know, really uh, abdicating to Congress the responsibility for policymaking, he's wound up in a more conservative place than, than, than how he ran. Um, so Romney, you know, on policy, I do think he's a centrist with a lot of interesting policy ideas, um, not, not, not a doctrinaire conservative at all. And I think because of his stature as the former presidential nominee, um, he'll be an important voice in the Senate, but, uh, and I'm sure he will be in the Senate. Um, but I really, I really wonder how much there's going to be um, an impact on uh, how much he's going to impact legislation, how much Mitch McConnell is going to change what goes into the bills um, because it's Romney rather than Hatch. I'm, I'm not really seeing a big, a big change there. Well, and no, I mean, I think something that listeners need to recognize is that it's, it's always easy to assume that any one particular congressperson is going to have, I mean, one particular congressperson, especially in the Senate will have the ability to say no more often, but it doesn't get any more yeses through. And that is the nature of the institutional beast that is Congress. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, it's a fascinating one. But it'll be interesting to see, because he has the name, what he kind of uses. He's going to have a little bit more of a of a pulpit in Congress. So it'll be interesting to see how he uses that as we move forward. And I think that's kind of the... You know that's kind of what we know about right now. So one last thing, I know we, we've got a few minutes left in the in the show, Ken, and so I'm just going to do something that's really fascinating for me. I don't know how many listeners have been paying attention to this, but uh, this week we hit a very fascinating milestone. Uh, we ha- it has marked a little over uh, a year since the last solo press conference for President Donald. Trump. Uh, and as a matter of fact, this is really fascinating because he will now be going down in history if he continues up with this as one of the only uh, contemporary presidents to have gone this long. Um, so just so we know, listeners, yes, he has had what we call 22 two and two joint press conferences with other world leaders, um, but he has only had one solo press conference, which happened a little over three weeks after his inauguration. Uh, and this is something that I have followed closely because this is something I've been interested in since 2011 uh, when, I was, when I write and argue about this in the scholarly literature, that we're going to have presidents, as they get access to social media, being not just willing but wanting to bypass the normal press channels in order to talk directly to individuals. And so Trump, in many ways, maybe he's an extreme caricature of that hypothesis, but by by far, he is definitely an engager on Twitter, and he has definitely been holding back on his press interactions. Uh, so, Ken, what do you I mean? This is very fascinating to me. I don't know if you find it quite as fascinating, yep. but what do you think about this? 
It's interesting. I had not realized until you told me that um, he's been a whole year without a press conference. But as as you just said, he does um, uh, communicate directly with the public through Twitter um, in ways that that previous presidents didn't. He also um, gets out. And, uh, you know, technically, um, he's already running for re-election in 2020. He's filed as a candidate. He goes out and does campaign events. So he has uh, ways that he's um, interacting with the public, but but not in ways where he can be uh, held accountable by the press. So he's That's what he's really been avoiding, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because... It- the you know we talked about the the Russian use of social media for these kinds of purposes, but I think one thing that we might need to think about more critically as observers and as, as Americans is you know even if you could take away the ability of other countries to interact, that doesn't change the fact that that kind of illiteracy uh, and that kind of direct conversation is changing the way that we're debating things. And if everyone is getting their primary information from social media, it probably shouldn't be a big shock that presidents want to engage in that conversation. Right. Because he can, yeah, he can say things and nobody has the ability to immediately confront him and and question um, whether the things he's saying are true. I mean, that's what would happen in a press conference, but that's what doesn't really happen on on Twitter. And uh, so I think he prefers that kind of uh, unmediated um, uh, conversation where he doesn't have to take follow-up questions and things like that. But, you know, I, and, and probably that's going to be the trend. Uh, I think you've, you've predicted in some of your writings that that's going to be the trend going forward for, for all presidents. But I, and I can't disagree with that, but I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a good development. No, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, and I, I, I think it's a difficult one to predict what the, the social ramifications of it will be. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to think something's going to happen. It's another to to say, well, here's all the variable outcomes on that front. Uh, but I think it's something that we'll have to continue to keep an eye on as we move forward. Well, Ken, it's been a lot of fun working with you this week. I hope you've had a good time, too. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Ken. And I want to thank all of our listeners, again, for listening to The Politics Guys. And I want to encourage you again, uh, if you would, if you would please visit politics.guys.com and take our survey. Help us improve the show as we move forward. I'm also going to ask that, again, if you have been interested, if you like the show, if you share it with friends or family, uh, we would love to see that happen. Uh, Likewise, if you really find a lot of use out of the show, don't forget that you can visit our our website, politicsguys.com, now both on your desktop computer and on iOS or Android. And you can support the show by clicking on the Patreon or the PayPal links. Uh, this week's episode uh, is, was brought to you by Trey and by Ken. And this week's episode was produced by Trey Warndorf. Thank you so much. We'll see you again next week.